evening, everyone. I hope everybody had a fantastic week. <sighs> Jesus, I got an itch in the middle of my back. So annoying. Oh, I just want to do like blue on Jungle Book and just like find some spot throw up against like a bear. Anyways, <clears throat> I hope you guys had a fantastic week and um, you got lots of riding done. Um, the sprints seem to be going really well. People are going, doing really well in the sprints. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Got so I was like literally darting back in here from from running around the house when the when the music started, so I'm a little crazy. <clears throat> Anyways, okay. So Julie suggested this topic, so um, let's see what she has to say about it. Uh, I actually have some pretty famous, um, <laughs> for me, impulse moments in my fic. Um, quark is an impulse. Um, tend to be the impulse. Quark is an impulse. And babies. Uh, and babies. And babies. babies, yeah. Impulse babies. Um, she has impulses uh, Avery, small, meaty things. <laughs> yeah. Avery is an impulse insert, and I'm paying for that. Because um, he's not in my plot, so I'm having to account for him. And in a lot of scenes where it's John's POV, one of the things that I've um, made notes on is where Sebastian is on the city. Um, so because John needs to be responsible for his kids, so he needs to know where his kid is um, at any point during the day, right? So now I have to account for Avery as well. And if Sebastian's in the lab, where the hell is the penguin, right? So is the penguin with him? Is the penguin sleeping? Is the penguin, has the penguin eaten today? You know, it's just all these things for my impulse that I'm paying for. Although I think the payoff is worth it in Avery's case, but that's not always the case. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. You know, when you do something impulsively in your writing and then you pay for it repeatedly. Or or sometimes, you know, um, maybe it's not even all that impulsive, but maybe it's just not that well thought out. It was like it was an impulse, creative impulse that seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> and those are like famous last words, right? It seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, yeah, because sometimes you just need to, you know, you need to evaluate those things carefully when they come across and and part of i think part of the thing is like is is your impulse does it serve does it serve a valuable enough purpose in what you're doing to um and valuable i don't mean valuable like in it probably maybe in the way people are taking it but does it serve enough of a purpose and, and a valuable enough purpose to um to, 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 for the ramifications it brings into your story. And if it serves no purpose, really think hard about that. But um, specifically like Avery is an example, since, since Kira brought up her impulse. I, Avery serves a lot of, um, in, to me, a lot of interesting purposes in, in the story. And, and not the least of which is that it, it's a bridge for Sebastian to open up emotionally. Um, animals are a really good bridge for that. So in terms of Sebastian's healing and his communication with others. Um, I think Avery's a really good vehicle for, for helping facilitate that. So it's it's kind of a subtle nuance behind the scenes thing that's not overtly in your face. But 
him having a, an emotional support penguin um, kind of explains, you know, sometimes where he's at emotionally, that he's he's getting better in some areas or he's more willing to talk or, or whatever. And it also um, takes some pressure off John, Um that that Avery that 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 Sebastian has that so I mean I think there's a lot of things that Avery does in the story, um, and the value that he brings to the story is probably part of why he was an, an impulse. Was you probably knew you needed something. He did need something, and there was uh, sometimes like I think an impulse is is um, rooted in an instinct that you get as a writer when you're working on something, when you know something, some element is missing that you need to account for, that you need to um, to make it a little more flush. And uh, a lot of times the things that Avery feels are really things that Sebastian thinks that he's obviously, you know, uh, like the fact that Kavanaugh is a butthole. You know, uh, that's, that is Sebastian's opinion. I doubt seriously that Avery knows what a butthole is. But, you know, <laughs> um, so, but Avery is an alien penguin, and he does have some empathy. He's uh, He's got some extra stuff going on, and he does have the ATA gene, so he's not quite as, um, he's not the the normal penguin, let's put it that way, but he's, uh, he's intuitive, and um, he's very attached to Sebastian, so it's, um, it's a kind of a mutual arrangement, because the thing is, is that Avery would not have survived in the wild. I didn't want to create a penguin, an animal character that he, that he took out of the wild, that would have done as well in the wild as he would on Atlantis, and so um, Avery is a genetic aberration. He is half the size he should be um, as an adult. He um, he wouldn't have survived long term, um, even with the colony not necessarily accepting him, but not um, they they made room for him, but he wasn't being included. Uh, so uh, he would have probably died more of loneliness than anything else if he had not been adopted. And no, and actually, you know what? Something else. Before somebody asks, there is no penguin colony in what might have been waiting for them to come back and get the city. So Avery is not out there on that planet. He doesn't exist in what might have been. So don't go having some kind of wild tangent about John taking the city from that planet and they're not being, you know, leaving the penguins the behind. The colony by the shark things, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that what you wrote, that the shark things were protected? Yeah. The penguins were protected from the sharks by something in the city? It's like, oh, my God. In all those curious, in all those stories where there's no city, the penguins are being eaten by the sharks. But actually, the penguins on in, in this particular story are genetically engineered. Um, I'm not sure if it'll come up in my um, in the in the actual narrative, but uh, – I haven't plotted in their species kind of backstory that they that they actually are a variant of the fairy penguin that you can that you can find in Australia on Earth, and they actually came from Earth originally, and they are part of Atlantis's. Um, they have a symbiotic relationship with Atlantis, 
because Atlantis um, filters so much of that krill, and they also clean the bottom of the city. And so uh, there's actually a little – there are actually little places in the bottom of the city where the penguins can um, come up in moon pools, and, and they, they just haven't found them yet. So the, so the penguins actually live under the city, and they have little colony spots and stuff, and they have their babies. And here's, and here's but, one of the things I talked about about impulses is the impulse cure if it, 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 like she said, it might come up or it might not some of this stuff. She's worked all this stuff out, and this would be the thing is that she has to evaluate carefully if it serves her story for that stuff to come out. And that's the kind of impulse you've got to really watch because we've, we've talked in other episodes about world building. Is there's a, an impulse when you've got done the world building is to share it all. Yeah, but it yeah. may not further it, it your story there. at all. So if you if if elements of what it never is a waste for you to be solid on your world, but just because you put time into it, it doesn't mean that it serves your story for it all to be revealed. Um, whether it's a world building detail or a piece of a character's backstory, maybe a complicated piece. Um, something you put a lot of work into. And there's, like I tell you, the more work you put into something, the more inclination you have to want to share it. Um, but it may not move your story along, and it may even bog it down. and it, Or it could seem com- – and, and actually, sometimes the more interesting something is, it could be that the readers won't, may, may not even notice that it's bogging the story down. It doesn't mean that it's not, though. Um, right. And I probably won't include that in this but if I did a sequel, um, they probably will find the penguin colony, um, and they'll figure out why the penguins are there. That the city actually attracted them when they when the city was on Earth, and um, they brought them along because they served a purpose. They they kept it underneath the city clean because they scavenged the the stuff off the bottom of the um, and these penguins evolved um, in that environment and. Um, that's how they live. So if, if they have huh. to move the city, they have to move the city with the penguins and they have to pick an ocean that can support the penguins. <laughs> oh, that's, I find that charming. And, 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 and in this sequel, maybe sequel, that could all be super, super relevant. But the question is, is right. it relevant in this story? And I mean, only Kira knows. I don't know what's left in her plot, but that's just something that you have to be mindful of. And I was reading something. Someone from this recently came up. But I read something recently. I've been kind of cruising along with the story, and I, I haven't had a big blocks of time for reading lately. Um, especially this week, just wound up being kind of sucked up with stuff. Um, and so I've been reading. You know, sometimes even a story that's finished, it takes me a lot longer than it would normally to get through it because I'm reading a chapter or two at a time. And um, I get to this point in the story where some information was revealed about a character, and it was really, really detailed, uh, really well thought out. I could tell there was a lot of research went into this information um, about a character's abilities. And um, and I'm thinking, okay, I, and my thought was, where is, I wonder where this is going, right? Because it went nowhere. It went nowhere. The story was over, but the story ended, and I kind of was scratching my head going, what was the point of that? You have 
basically what amounted to like an entire chapter, like maybe 5,000 words or something. It was, you know, a normal size chapter. It could have been a little longer. Um, devoted to all of this interesting back, what, what amounts to character backstory that served absolutely no purpose. It was like all of this, it was like, it wound up being like a data dump that had n- no value. And and so I was kind of scratching my head about that, and it kind of when we were talking about podcast topics, that story kind of crossed my mind because I was like, that that one thing was so off. It was so off of the rest of the plot. It was so distracting, that it, and only because it didn't go anywhere. It was just like, and I thought, that's an impulse. The, the decision to include that in, and maybe there's going to be a sequel where that's all really relevant. And there's a difference between foreshadowing something for a sequel and just doing a data dump about it. Because in the context of that story, it was just this out-of-place blob that served no function. And, and it wound up being a pace killer right around the climax of the story because all of this character backstory didn't feed into the climax. It didn't feed into anything that had happened up to that point. It didn't feed into anything that came after. It was just like – it was almost like an outtake. It was utterly bizarre. And I, I felt like the way it read, when I thought about it after when I got to the end of the story, my thought on it was that, that they had done all this, this character work and that it had never quite come up naturally in the story. And so they felt like they just needed to get it out. <laughs> that was the only thing I could account for this. <laughs> and just, I know all this shit, and now you have to know it, too. Thank you. Right. Bye. It's just, no, bye. <laughs> just resist, a bit resist about the impulse. World building and how that, um, and how that works. Um, one of the things um, that will happen when you have a... Um, when you have a impulse like Avery, um, like I had my Avery impulse or my Quark impulse, um, or that whole Theseus and Atlantis being two separate um, entities was an impulse. Sometimes impulses work out great, and they give you this rich background and this expansion in your piece. In, in your piece, and other times they're like a solid balloon in your plot. And, and you fucked up, and you don't even know it. Um, and you won't um, know. Sometimes I don't even know I've done it until I'm in my rough draft. I'm thinking, I fish my rough draft, I'm going into my second draft, and I'm thinking, what the fuck? What? What? Why is this here, and why did I only mention it once? If this comes up on my site, some asshole is going to send me an email asking me questions about this. There's a bush. And this won't make sense to you now, but it'll make sense to you later in June. There's a bush. And I mentioned this bush. And then I forgot to mention the bush for like ever. And then I, I remembered the bush and I was like, shit, now I got I got why why is why is the bush in here? Why what happened to the bush? And so then I had to put the bush in a scene. So, and that won't make sense to you right now. But in June, that will make perfect sense. Okay. There is a bush. <laughs> there is a bush. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a dirty way either. <laughs> or in the unfortunate way my mother me- me- meant it. 
it is it is shrubbery. It is it is shrubbery. Um, but uh, world building <laughs> is shrubbery. Um, <laughs> world building is a mixture of of things. It is your settings. It is the politics of your world. It is the social mores of your world. It is how your characters are educated, how your characters move, how your characters communicate, um, where they go. The, the Stargate is a piece of world building. The vehicles they drive, the food they eat, the language they speak, the rules they follow, the rules they break, and how they are punished and not punished for those rule breaking. All of that is world building. Now, whether you take the world you live in now and stick your characters down in it, or whether you create an entire world where you build it from the ground up, which you look and you look, and you look at things like um, Lord of the Rings, which has an immense world building um, complex underneath it. Um, Harry Potter has um, J.K. Rowling built a world within a world, and that is actually takes a, that t- t- takes a, that is quite a feat. Um, and in that respect, she's brilliant, and uh, and that's that, that's huge. Uh, Percy Jackson is a world within a world, and um, they he built the the world of demigods inside the world we live in, and it's hiding in our world. And that is immense. That is just fantastic. Um, and when you get it right, when you, when you make it interesting, when you make it fascinating and people can say what they want to about J.K. Rowling, um, about whether or not she spent too much time, um, in the Harry Potter fandom or whether she needs to move on or, or whatever. But she gave, a generation of people, an entire world to live in. Mm-hmm. That she inspired in. a generation of readers. Yeah. She continuously inspires a whole swath, a whole humongous fandom to produce works that we all read. So, um, no. Someone someone mentioned it, and I forget who it was in the chat room that that she needed to retire. No, she doesn't. She earned her spot. She can spend the next two decades talking about Harry Potter if she fucking wants to. She earned it. Yeah. And, you know, but the thing is, I imagine there's an immense amount of her world building that we have not seen. Um, Right. And the thing is, sometimes, if we look at, like, if we look at Tolkien, um, when he finished The Lord of the Rings, I don't think anybody had any idea the immense amount of world building that nobody knew about. You had to know it was there. It was, it was, un- and, but there was so much that you have all these supplemental works and things that are incompleted and stuff that, that they, they, that has been put out. And it's kind of like, wow. And I don't know that, that we even still have seen the entire breadth of the world building he did um, for middle earth. We won't. And because I think a lot of it was probably in his head and, and he took it with him. Yeah, yeah, there's that. And J.K. Rowling, I mean, sometimes um, how and when an author approaches continuing to expand on their world, um, 
it does it can depend on it can alter how the audience receives it. Um, and and I think J.K. Rowling, there's a lot of avenues she could explore to explore her world building more and fl- and expose or not explore it, but expose more of it in other because her because when you do a big fantasy or sci-fi world, um, there's so much that goes into it that if you have if you can find storylines to put into it, that she could keep going. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be. Um, a success from a literary perspective, but she should explore it if she wants to, and that's sort of the whole point of it, right? Is that that it's hers, and she's earned that that where, like you said, she's earned her spot. And um, if she wants to keep writing, you know, if she wants to write, you know, um, founders era stories about how the founders came together, she should do that. She should do whatever the fuck she wants to do. I actually, think if that I had probably... my druthers. If I could sit down with J.K. Rowling and say, hey, could you write about this? But I would ask her for, and I wouldn't because you don't do that to writers. They they write their own path. But if there was a moment where she said, hey, Kira, what would you like to, to read about in the Harry Potter world? I would say, you know what? Give me a series of books on the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. Give me a powerful, charismatic, flawed, sexy, kind of angry wizard that Tom Hiddleston plays. <laughs> yeah, in the movies. Yeah, <laughs> because the thing is, a lot of a lot. A lot of the, he goes um, to work every day as a magical cop and does his fucking job and. Have hot women and <laughs> or hot men. I'm not picky. <laughs> you got to figure people who came of age on Harry Potter, right? They they're all adults now. They've all got jobs. There, a lot of them are out there watching shows like um, SEAL Team and um, FBI and SWAT and NCIS, and th- these are the shows these people are watching now, right? So I think that that would have a lot of resonance. Um, um, the magical version of a crime drama, sort of, but not without the without the monster of the week case sick aspect. Um, I think that'd be great, but like you said, I've never asked that kind of thing. But I, I also, I, I would definitely pick that up if she wrote it. But I would also pick up if she wrote Founders Era, if she wrote how Hogwarts came about, and she wrote like a really captivating tale about um, how the four sound of school but um but with these worlds and you look at like Anne McCaffrey's world the 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 dragon riders world building and you think about how much is unexposed and that is that that restraint um is I think it's definitely something that writers learn um and some of them learn it through their editor's some of them, I think, learn it just through reading, right? They, they, some of them kind of pick it up a little bit more than others. And some of them um, learn it through having their editors and their publishers kind of beat it into them. It's like, this is good, but we've got to pull back a little bit. You're just kind of like getting going into detail overload. And then they, you know, a few books in, they figured it out. They're not doing it quite as much. Um, 
But, you know, there's nobody kind of, especially with a primarily uh, primary group of people who primarily write fan fiction, there's nobody with, with fandom primarily telling them, you got to rein yourself in a little bit. You know, this is, this is, and so with people who are doing their learning ground, they're kind of learning their craft or honing it in fandom, they don't have that, that voice telling them, you got you got to you got don't want to don't don't give away everything you know in the first in the first chapter rein it in <laughs> um, and possibly the most the, the the impulse in the moment some of those can be very dangerous because that can be a little bit like oh that's shiny let's put that in um, and if you aren't good at thinking about the ramifications um, I mean Kira's really good about so she, it's a little bit easier for her to pants in a, a penguin or a cat or something without it blowing a up the whole plot. pants in a penguin. My, yeah. My pants penguin. I, you know, I honestly, I, I adore Avery. And so it, it makes it easy. But um, it's just especially difficult when you're in, like, you're in a, tr- a situation like Rough Trade where you're posting your rough work as you write. And you do this thing like you add a penguin out of the blue and then, you go back to your plot document and you have to add the penguin everywhere. You got to feed the penguin. And, how's, and you know what? That whole thing about how the penguin was going to potty on the, on the city was quite. So I also, I, I hand waved it. If you guys didn't get the whole um, penguin potty thing, that was a hand wave. I'm like, fuck it. I'm not dealing with this. Atlantis has got it covered. <laughs> That's right. And that's why and I was like, okay, so how does Atlantis know to do this, and how does Avery know how it works? It's because they already have them down below in the penguin colony. That's how she handles their waste. She's been doing it all of his life. So he's used to Atlantis providing him a potty. He just had to, Atlantis just had to nudge him to where to find it. Um, right. And it's just, it, it it makes it it makes I would totally have hand waved that too because I'd have been like uh, the last deal. thing I want to write in is having shit. to walk the penguin, you know, not well, right. The penguin shit. I can't deal with penguin shit. Or peng the penguin version of a cat box? No, that's just not cool. Um, so you kind of got to when you whether it's an impulse it depends on what kind of impulse there's lots of impulses right there's if it's an, a truly a pants impulse like it's just something that occurred to you in that moment oh i could do sometimes your impulse is is something that occurs to you that fixes a problem okay but whatever it is whatever's off it's off your plan take the time to stop and think about it at least for a few minutes and make sure you're not about to blow your whole story up um um, and the other impulse that we're talking about, well, there could be more more than just two, but the other impulse is like what we're talking about, which is the impulse to include things you don't need. Um, and I would say with both of them, I see, I see both of those things in, in spades in fan fiction is stuff that it was clearly not well thought out when it was tacked on. Um, because A, it feels tacked on, and B, it, it immediately contradicts something that's already in the story. Um, and recognizing that you have a problem with something like that, it's just a matter of experience. It's just a matter of practice. But the, the other one, the, the ability to see the ripples, that's the experience and practice of the, the impulse to, we'll call it the impulse to overshare. Um, 
that is just a learning to rein yourself in thing. <laughs> Every, we all have to learn to do it. Now, less so in fan fiction, because Gary and I both talked about that she includes vanity scenes. I mean, I know when I'm putting a scene in, it doesn't need to be there in fan fiction. I'm like, yeah, I know this doesn't be, need to be here, but I want it, so there. <laughs> that goes back to that thing where you have to know the rules before you can break the rules effectively. Um, and in fandom, in fan fiction, and one of the reasons why I kind of um, play, why fandom, fan fiction is my hobby and writing is my job, um, is that it allows me to kind of like open up my mind a little um, and explore concepts and um, get a little verbose with ideas that I would not have the room to do professionally. Uh, like, it would be really hard to stick an alien penguin in <laughs> in a professional work, unless my people were living on an alien planet, which is entirely possible. Although I do have a Friends to Lovers um, a contemporary that I'm kind of noodling and working on. Um, there, would, there won't be a penguin. Um, but, it, but it was kind of an impulse. I, I was, I just had a, this idea and I started writing it and then I had to stop and plot. But, um, it, I'm sorry, I got distracted by something really attractive in the chat room. <laughs> so distracting with attractiveness. Or ugliness. No. <laughs> it, it, it threw me completely off. I went over and I, when I looked over and I saw it. Um, I would Did your brain reboot? That. Yeah, it's it's perfectly safe to share on Discord, but during the podcast, we ask you guys not to share pics like that because they're distracting and they can throw us off. And I don't even know what I was saying. It just kind of flew right out of my head. It's just like, it's just gone. I'm, I don't even... Oh, but yep. Talking about uh, impulses and uh, you know on the fly decisions that you make, it's, it's fine, sweetheart. You didn't know. Um, it uh, sometimes you do it because you've got a problem in the back of your mind when, when you're writing that you're not aware of. It's kind of like an instinctual response to the problem that you're that is kind of percolating for you. And this is um, this is this is a writer's headspace. And if you're not a writer, it might be difficult for you to grasp this. But um, whether you're a plotter or a pantser, um, your creative process in your mind, I think, works the same way in that you are building a story in your head and how it comes out, whether it be as, as a plotting experience first or as a completely pants experience. Because um, really what it boils down to it um, is that I pants first and then I write. Because my plot is a pantsing situation. It has to start somewhere, right? Yeah. So I lay out all my elements, and, you know, and I'm planning as I go, which is kind of like pantsing, right? So, but it's not a little more. And then I do my writing. So I pant, you know. But because... Are, because of the way a writer's brain is kind of organized in that when you're when you're working, sometimes you will have a problem or you will see something. Um, and instinctually, the more you write, the better you will be at it. And you will have 
these moments, okay, something is not working and you might not know what it is and you have an impulse to put something in and it helps or it doesn't. Then you just try again. You have to try again (laughs) until you find what is working. And with finding Atlantis, I was missing – I was having – the character of Sebastian is is different in Finding Atlantis than he is in what might have been. Because this Sebastian was protected by um, his mother's lawyer because the lawyer wasn't in the car with her and therefore didn't die. Um, so, yes, that does mean that, you know, that, that he did die in what might have been with Karen. Um, when he is... Um, so he was protected from the moment it happened. You know, um, Mason went and got him. He took care of him. He guarded her state. He didn't let him get put in foster care. There was never a moment where he was, didn't feel safe um, in that he was physically safe. And he, he had these worries about what had happened to his mom and what might happen to Mason. But he was never exposed to anything abusive or violent, um, which is not the case for the, for the Sebastian and, and what might have been. Um, who, by the time that story ends, sees McKay shoot somebody in the head. So this is a very different kid. This is a um, um, this version of Sebastian is kind of innocent, and um, he kind of he lives in his head. And so I was having a hard time getting into his head, and I was and then I had, I was like I was. It was kind of difficult to connect him emotionally to other people. And I was thinking, this kid needs a dog, but this kid can't have a dog. What can this kid have? And then suddenly this kid had an emotional support penguin. <laughs> right. Because you knew you needed something. <laughs> right. It was just – and some, sometimes you go into the writing with that little gap. Like, it's it's rattling around in the head back of your mind that you have that kind of thing. Um, and – some things are small enough you figure you'll sort it out when you get there if you've recognized it overtly at all. It's like, well, I'll sort it out when I get there. Um, and sometimes those wind up being a bigger deal than you expect they will be. Um, your impulse was just was feeding a need that you had. Right. Um, now, if you had done a dog or um, or a tiger... Um, it could have had more logistical consequences than uh, Elementary Tiger. Because if you haven't read, if you're an SGA person and you haven't read Race Killers, I don't know what's wrong with you. Right? <laughs> I was thinking the same thing when you said it. Oh, Race Killers. But wouldn't it be hilarious if, like, Ronan took um, Sebastian to the mainland? And this actually almost happened when I was figuring out what kind of, you know, um, animal would, would end up in Sebastian's care to kind of give him a an emotional focal point, I w- it would be like, so So, what if Sebastian goes to the mainland with Ronan and comes back with a puppy that turns out to be like dire wolf? <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling Ronan would be that, like that pet. That, uh, that, that almost happened. Um, oh. Yeah. Yeah. No, if, if, if you've not read get the link. Killers, um immediately after the podcast you are to go read Race Killers because what? What? If someone gets can someone get the link for for someone get, it's by Lady Raw, so you should be able to just find it. But somebody we'll get you a we'll hook you up with a direct link so you can just get right there. Right. Right. Yeah. 
that that was the exact reason he didn't um, play is that he hadn't washed his hands. One of the things that Sebastian does in what might have been is that when he when he when he gets his violin back before he picks it up, he goes and washes his hands because you don't play a three hundred year old instrument with dirty hands. And the Jupiter seven seventeen twenty two does exist. It is. It's currently in private hands, but I think it's been loaned out to a couple musicians over the years. Um, but it but it does exist. It is, it is a real Stradivarius, and um, that is a real picture of it, too, that I posted on my um, story. So, but, um, yeah, I, I picked that one because um, Jupiter as its name. I was like, oh, well, of course it has to be that. It has to be Jupiter. Yeah, it has to be Jupiter. This is a spacey naming one in a Stargate fic, of course. It has to be Jupiter. Yeah, so. Um, well, it's really funny because um, earlier on in the series, John threatens to dismember a member of the FBI and distribute his parts around the, the solar system, and Sam Carter Asked him where he would start, and he says, "I would start with Jupiter." So it was a really <laughs> weird coincidence when I put the violin in. I was like, "I have to pick a name," and I was going through all the, the various surviving instruments um, that have survived this ride from from that. And I saw the Jupiter, and I was like, "Well, shit, it has to be the Jupiter." <laughs> yes, Matt is my yeah. Matt Matt is um, cast the same as always. Yes. For those of you who have not noticed, Declan Frost and Sean Taylor are on the city. Uh, Sean is a marine biologist, and, of course, Declan is a Navy SEAL. He's, um, he's John's um, uh, highest-ranking NCO. Now, I do we have how I Michael? feel about Jupiter being my spirit planet, because isn't Jupiter a gas giant? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. Although my husband did say that there is a theory that Jupiter's core, um, because it's, it's under so much pressure that it could be just one big giant diamond, and I am all aboard that. <laughs> is um, Declan um, Michael Weatherly? I, you know, the thing is, is, I originally cast Michael Weatherly as Declan, and I changed it in, I changed the casting for um, Declan and Sean in, um, in Sentinels of Atlantis, because I want to include the character of Tony Dinozo in Sentinels of Atlantis, who's played by Michael Weatherly. Um, I, I have to admit, Tyler Hecklin settled in my brain, so when I heard, when I when you mentioned Frost, I was like, I immediately vi- visualized Tyler Hecklin, but um, it, it is Tyler to me because I feel like um, the more and more I feel like Tom Genozo is probably related to the Shepherds, and so you know, um, I think in some situations I could actually write Alex, but um, he's always going to be like at least a Shepherd cousin. So more and more, I want to change the casting of um, Declan across the board t- to Tyler. Um, and um, and then I want to change the character of um, Sean to make him a little younger to match the characterization of Tyler because um, um, Orlando Bloom is quite a bit older than um, Tyler, and I just want them to be close in age. I don't know why. Yeah. 
I understand. Of course, understand. Orlando Bloom will continuously look twelve the rest of his life, but he is quite quite a bit older than than, than Tyler. <clears throat> so, um, Ellie gave us an example of an impulse that she had to deal with. I don't know if this impulse made it in or if it if she thought rethought it before it put in. Um, but she said that her impulse was suddenly having David Shepard try to ask Miko out and then realize in subsequent stories she has to deal with Miko going to Atlantis when she's in a relationship with David. And yeah, that's the kind well, of impulse that has ramifications. If you which I mean there's there's ways to deal with it, of course, but it is the kind of thing that sometimes you put into a story and then you go Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> there are ramifications I have to deal with there. Maybe. <laughs> it's funny as hell, Dark. in the middle of scripts the other day. Oh, she did put it in the story. I'm, okay. I'm running scripts. And I know. I'm, I'm, I'm running scripts now. And I'll look up. It, no, I was. And I look up, and Dark um, Serafina has put, with no context, in the chat, feel like I brought a knife to a gunfight. And I just... Oh, so... I just like... I just, I just stared at it. And then I, thought, then I had to take a screenshot of it and show Jilly, because I didn't want her to miss it. Because there was just nothing. There was no context around it. It was just that. I was like... Do you need help? <laughs> oh, she needs a dog. Now, the thing about Ellie's mm-hmm. impulse that she had about doing a, a plot change or a plot addition, which she did apparently do, and it's her current rough trade story, um, is Ellie's a, Ellie's a plotter. I was in sprints with her when she was deliberately pantsing something. And it was the agonies of the damned. <laughs> I didn't know if she was going to get through it. <laughs> I, <laughs> it was, I, I, I almost thought she was going to have like a celebra- celebration, like, you know, go to another channel and like pop up in a, you know, a bottle of champagne because she finished this pants thing and thank fuck she could get back to something she had plotted. Um, so... Um, so yeah, it's, and the reason why that's, you know, her impulse is amusing is because she put it in and now she has to deal with the ramifications of that, which for a plotter putting in something on, on impulse that you then have to, um, uh, apparently the story that she pants is called the taste of sweet peaches and it's up on her site. If anybody wants to go see the, the pantsing, um, and um, so for a, a plotter to make an impulse decision, and then they kind of, you know, face palm over it because they're like, shit, now i got to go fix my whole plot. Uh, it, it can be, sometimes you really pay for your impulses. <laughs> it's interesting because, okay, there's a, there's a couple of impl- um, implications there that, that in your thing where in that, you're um that you're making the assumption that 
um, in future works, that relationship that you're creating with Formico and David will work. Um, when there's every reason to believe that they might have a couple of dates that it not that not click, and um, she moves on, <laughs> which would be very easy to write. You know, well we're gonna we're gonna be friends, but we didn't work out as a couple. It, it's fine. <laughs> or you know, she goes to Atlantis and he pines like a poor, terrible house elf on Earth till she comes back, or she doesn't go to Atlantis at all. Or they, um, or they both go to Atlanta. He goes with it. He goes with her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No discussion of a magical butt sex mystery tour while you were gone, as. But we can do that now if you, if you were looking forward to it. It isn't in our plan for the podcast, but there's always room for a magical mystery butt sex. That's a mystery twice. You get my meaning. There's lots of mysteries, there's lots of butts, and they're on tour. <laughs> a big gay love in Canada. Someone recently they asked me that story. One and, personal item. And because I do tend to call it Big Gay Love in Canada, I actually forgot the real title of that story. It took me forever to find it. Uh, what is the title? Uh, big Gay Love. I forget again. <laughs> See, she started to say Big Lit Gay Love in Canada because she thinks that's the title. We all do, right? And there was no big gay love in Canada in um, on the EAD. Um, in Abel and Kira, I see that. Yeah, I see that. So it took me, so it took me a bit to find. No, no, it's not called big gay love in Canada. Now I have to go find it again. It's ridiculous. Um, it won't somebody ask for it. Will it? No, that's because when I first started writing it, I actually titled the file Big Gay Love in Canada, and it has stuck in my head ever since. Um, but the person who asked for it asked for it on Minion Headquarters, so it should be pretty... <laughs> Working titles can be... Giving, giving, especially giving yourself a, 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 a cracky working title that sticks, it's, it can be the devil getting that out of your head. Well, maybe it wasn't. But I thought it was in Minion Headquarters. I can't even Google Big Gay Love in Canada because that's not going to be the result I get. Five LGBT neighborhoods to explore across Canada. Yeah, that's not helping. <laughs> you found Big Day Love in Canada. <laughs> Is it on EAD? Yeah, I think it's um, Jeep found ah, it. Found it. No, that's not it. That's not it. That would be it. It's called More Than Anything. Um, Yeah, that's it. Anyway, 
Um, it's original title was Big Gay Love in Canada, and it remains that in my brain. It will never be anything different. It was really difficult to find. How do you find it on your own on your own hard drive to work on it if you if you can't find the title? Right, it's a problem. Yes, yeah, you're gonna have to like put you know more than anything dash <laughs> Big Gay Live in Canada so that you can find your own document. <laughs> Investors is have over a hundred works in progress, but they are actually categorized by um, fandom and genre. So, my works in progress are not that organized; they're just under works in progress. <laughs> well, that, that's if something's more than a one shot, or I think it's more than a one shot, it gets its own folder. But that doesn't help when it comes to organization. <laughs> Especially, and also, fandom organization doesn't help for me because I write too many crossovers. So, yeah, I probably should organize my central character. But what's the main fandom in a story where Tony's working in the Stargate? But Tony's my main character. Is that NCIS I'd or is that Stargate? And I, I would, I wouldn't even be able to tell you I'd from moment to moment. But see, on my site, I would list anything that's Tony focused as bring primarily NCIS because he's the I main character. The find it. But you would still market so. Stargate as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just it's just well, and from moment to moment. Like if I think about what the what the fan of the story is, it's primarily Stargate. But if I think about the central character, it's NCIS. And so it's just you know from moment to moment, I would think it's an NCIS primarily or a Stargate story, depending upon how I was thinking about it. So yeah, or I organize mostly. I think by world building because my Harry Potter crossover in uh, with um, the Hobbit is in my Hobbit folder because they're on Middle Earth. Then that made sense to me. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so world, you kind of organized by the world they're in. Yeah. Whatever, whatever your setting is, that's your organization. So if I put Tony Genozo on Atlantis, I would probably put it in my SGA folder because he's on Atlantis. But you would would Tony be your main character though? Um, I do have an idea. Do you? Mm-hmm. Not that. Oh, I'm very intrigued. I love Tony's notes. Well, Tony's we did a whole bunch of them where he ascended, um, and and I do have an idea where he um he where he dies during dead air and um he ascends, but then you had the same idea. Um, and I put that aside, and then I had another idea where he got called out to investigate a murder, except Lady Holder wrote it. And then I was like, I'm running out of ideas. <laughs> well, but since when has us having similar ideas? Clearly, lately, not stopped us at all. <laughs> but we you know, go the thing is, and- like you said, when you said you always wanted to write a fic about um, Steve and Tony coming to a head in a crime scene, and that you felt like it, that need had been satisfied because I wrote it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Were they neat over See? crime scene? Yeah. Yeah, you did. You, you got me there. <laughs> but I had I had an impulse about Tony in an SGA story once. And it was something else that I was already working on. And the impulse was that Tony was he had a, he had a real job on the in, in, in the SDC, but he had another job that was the head of the Department of 
it, it was listed, I was going to have it right, it was listed as the head of the department of MSU. And, um, and somebody asked, what is the department of MSU? And it was the department of making shit up. And that it had become a thing that um, the SGC, every time they have some bizarre new off-world or even foothold circumstance where something bizarre happens that can't be, regu- that can't be explained or they need a new report for it, that somebody creates a report that for the SGC, and you've seen this in stories, people talk about the SGC as a lot of forms kind of thing, which I'm sure mm-hmm. they do. They have all kinds of unusual reports. But that Tony was the person who figured out how to slot all those forms that were made up into existing military forms. So he <laughs> thought of which military procedure this form would be reported under, redacted the fuck out of it, and then would plug it in to standard military forms. So they, because he was so good at figuring out what military um, regulation to report stuff under and which standard military forms to use, they jokingly made him the department of making shit up, head of the department of making shit up. And um, so that's what he does. Is he, it's a minor thing. that, and it, But the thing is, it didn't actually, even though I was very entertained, so in my head in this story, he does this. This is what he does. Part of, it's a very minor part of his job. Um, but he's because he's so good at it, Jack just wants him to do it. But it w- didn't fit with the story, and it was it, it was not relevant in any meaningful way to that story. So that little piece of world building that I had done for him got completely cut because it served no function, and it was almost I get it, but I'm sad. <laughs> it was almost off brand, and so I had thought about like doing a series, like a series of like a series of like little episodes where a new thing happens off world and Tony has to figure out how to report this and what it's going to be reported as or like, you know, um, but the thing is that I felt like I needed to start looking at what a bunch of, you know, oddball military forms were that we could use. Like, you know, um, that they lost, that they traded a bunch of stuff in order to get certain herbs on a traded a bunch of weapons to get a bunch of herbs on some, planet or something and that he uses a disposed munitions form a munitions disposal form to report it <laughs> just <laughs> anyway i was very entertained by the idea and i kind of did a little more work on it than i probably should have for something that i i knew i wasn't going to use <laughs> but it just wouldn't have fit you know so um it so it didn't get used because I had to look at that, my impulse to put that in, and this kind of funny aspect of his job that didn't didn't serve a purpose, and it was just kind of there for the humor value, which sometimes you need something for the humor value, but I prefer things that aren't, aren't quite so, because that could have been a big thing, right? That could have just felt like a red herring. Like, where is that going? So... Um, I didn't, I didn't do anything with that in that story. So, such as it is. I also use Avery to kind of lighten the tone. He has a good, he has a good mood lightener. And so, because um, sometimes when you have a heavy theme like the fact that Sebastian's mother was murdered, that's really heavy, um, especially on a ten-year-old, and um, the guilt he carries because he thinks it's his fault, um, and that he's not getting that out 
um, and her ashes. And, you know, so having a, a character like Avery in in the mix um, can get you, the reader, and your characters out of their head, which is super important when you're writing something with a heavy theme, whether it be something like Avery or um, <clears throat> some other kind of um, element that you use to um, lighten the load. Yeah, I use that. I mean, I don't. Well, I guess it, I guess it's 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 a little heavy on drama in places. But I used um, I threw Bubba in. Oh, I mean, I didn't I didn't pants in Bubba. I planned Bubba Bear in 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 Demons. I knew, I planned that from the beginning. Um, I actually had almost that had I, I almost put the bear in in. Um, and stick around, but I, I felt like it was premature then, and so I decided I would mm-hmm. use it in the sequel. Um, it's just kind of a light-hearted element, and and also it was kind of a, it was a it was a bit of a nod to Iron Man three because I and the Big Bunny, yeah, the Big Bunny, um, be, not because I, although the Big Bunny was not it, the size of the bunny was not a secret it was not a mystery to to Tony in. Um, Iron Man 3, whereas this time it was an accident. But it's just sort of like the kind of, how Tony can be kind of over the top. And so I could see him, you know, giving an order to somebody to get the biggest bunny you can, I mean, get the biggest bear you can, and send it to this address. And people will really run with that if somebody's got an unlimited bank account. Um, right? <laughs> of course, they have giant bears at Walmart that I kind of want to buy just so I can, you know, have something to cuddle up with when I sleep. You know, nap during the yeah. day. Yeah. So, but that was intended kind of like a, a humor, a little bit of a lighthearted element. But I also have in demons, I also have the relationship with the bots is kind of a a little bit of that's more lighthearted. Um, so there's things to to break up the tension without completely altering the tone of the story, because that's I you have to be really careful with your lighthearted element that you don't go re- so ridiculous with it that it's like a jolt. For me in Darkly Loyal, one of the elements that I used to lighten the um the end when they were killing all those people, um and I was like, you know what, I I, I need to give some kind of um I need to lighten it a little bit but I don't want to, like I said, destroy my momentum or my tone, as Julie just said. Um, and that's why the house elves have the competition on the board for, for killing Death Eaters. Um, that was, um, it It needed to be done. <laughs> but I needed an element that was a little more lighthearted, comparatively speaking, if you can say killing a whole bunch of Death Eaters is lighthearted. Um, in that, uh, yeah, to soften it, because um, uh, there are several moments in Dr. Lowell where Harry got excessively violent, um, and I needed to, at least in my mind, he was excessively violent for, for what I normally write um, in Harry Potter, and so I, I needed to to lighten the whole context of the um, 
of those of those moments, and especially when the, the Death Eaters they're taking care of the Death Eaters because, because they became like a footnote in Doctor Lowell, which was hilarious. It wasn't necessarily my intention when I started plotting, but by the end of it, I was like, Voldemort really just isn't even a problem, really. <laughs> He wasn't the issue. <laughs> because the prophecy was about Dumbledore and it was about um he was the he was the card they needed to jerk free in order to expose Flamel's house of cards, so yeah. to speak. They, he was the stumbling block to expose all that and to um protect themselves and um, their future. So, but yeah, you know, sometimes you need a little a little element to kind of round out your narrative and make it not so not so um, oppressive. Not that right. anything about Darkly Loyal was oppressive, but what it could have been, if you hadn't ele- put in the killing competition, is that could have become an element of monotony. Um, I don't know for sure. I mean, I'm sure you would have conquered the monotony aspect of it. But, kill- you know, killing over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, you could have eventually went out of ways to do it in ways that even you found entertaining. So, um, and it was like, have gotten, how much like, Death Eaters do I got? Can I drop a bomb on them? I mean, I'm just really tired. I'm tired of this. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired and, of And so you, you, you had a way of dealing with it that it, it brought you, brought a, a, a moment of a, le- a true levity into something that, because the killing was a little, it's not like, it wasn't like we were, you know, we were, we were reading a chronicle of a serial killer or something. It wasn't that kind of dark, right? But because the, there was a levity to the killing, Um in many cases, not always. Some cases it was very serious, but that the killing in the bank with the cart, um, um, <laughs> right at the beginning. My favorite one. My favorite that, one is that one. Umbridge. Yeah, that and, one. That oh, yeah, Umbridge and and what's his face, the the dwarf. I can't remember his name. Um, Grip Hook. That was I. I laughed my ass my off. My favorite. Um. It was so my favorite. That, yeah. He gave himself an early birthday present. It was my favorite yeah. one in the whole book. So that killing, I mean, to me that was particularly funny. Um, and some of them, like some of them, I were very were much more serious. But some of them were very funny. The death, the way the whole death went down, was very funny. Um, and but I so, but I do think that interjecting more humor in that range of for that first killing, like and Dobby and Winky and then the nun doing the volcano. Um, and Francis, it, it, it was right. It was right on tone, right, for the kind of humor you'd already Speaking brought into the story. Impulses. Francis is an impulse. Francis was a very good impulse. I like Francis. Yeah, because there's some impulses that, and you could the thing is, some impulses you, if you bring them in, okay, so that's an impulse that doesn't significantly impact her plot, but it was an impulse that she could leverage if she, in her plot if she needed to, and. You did leverage Francis more, um, but she didn't have to always the first existed, time either. But she was just going to be in that one scene with the Death Eater. But I enjoyed her so much that she kept popping up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it gave you another another place to go for go with for humor. But mm-hmm. Francis wasn't something we blah, blah 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 blah. 
put her in, it wouldn't have that kind of thing doesn't isn't necessarily going to um, potentially negatively impact your plot. And it also wasn't revealing a bunch of stuff um, that didn't need to be there. So Francis served her purpose in that scene, and she was so charming that it gave you something you could leverage later. A baby hit minion. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I, I mean, impulses aren't, yeah. impulses aren't necessarily, they're not bad or good or whatever. They're just a thing, right? Um, and even, that's about the size of Bubba. Just not <laughs> quite that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's about, that's about Bubba's size. Um, so, but even when you, um, Whenever you have an whenever you have an impulse, um, it's just a matter of evaluating its impact and does it serve your story. And some impulses you are are about filling a need, right? It's like okay, I've got a need, and all of a sudden you get an idea. So the need came first. You fill you fill it. Other impulses are just I'm gonna I'm gonna call them. They're their own inspiration. Okay, you're being inspired by yourself. So, I see this happen. Yeah, well, I see this happen to authors all the time, and it's a great thing. Is that you're writing something, and you trigger your own creativity, your own inspiration, right? And there's an and you get an idea, and there's an impulse to plug that into what you're writing right there. But it may not necessarily. It's like you're being inspired by your work to to do something else. Okay. It doesn't necessarily mean you want to plug that idea in right here. And, I mean, it's happened to me where I've, like, started writing on a story and I'm writing along and I'm like, oh, oh, that's a really good idea. But it doesn't really fit what I'm doing at that moment. So I file that away and go work on it for something else, something that it really does fit into, that it doesn't distract or detract from what I'm doing currently. Um, I, I mean, I... Um, the my, my my evil author day from um, this year, the Teen Wolf one, the, the like two chapter Teen Wolf one. That one, <laughs> um, that one was an impulse that started in another story, um, and I decided that it didn't fit in the story that it was in, and I needed to have a different vehicle for exploring that. Uh, and I really did think, did this fit in the story I'm working on? And it really didn't. It would not have been a good vibe for the story I was working on. So I moved on. And um, and I um, wrote, took that impulse and I wrote something else. And I'm much happier with it being separate from where I had originally. And not being able to use something in the project you're in is not a negative thing. I mean, it's great that you were inspired with this new idea. Inspiring yourself is, I mean, that's what it, that's what we do, right? Getting inspired by your own writing is, is I think that's really great. Uh, but it doesn't always work in every story, and so you just got to kind of look at look at what's what's coming into your mind, and go, does this serve, um, or could I do something else with it? <laughs> um. 
And if the answer is that it doesn't serve, just swallow back the disappointment that you can't share this, that you're not, can't put this thing you really are enamored with right at that moment into this story. And sometimes you're so enamored with an idea, you put down the story you're working on and go work on the other, the new idea. I've done that, haven't you? Yeah. Let's like you're midstream on something. You ever like wake up and realize you're in the NCIS universe? I mean, you just realize that. Don't go to Rock Creek Park. It's not <laughs> safe there for a guest Especially star, your petty and officer. that's what you would be. <laughs> You'd be a guest star. Don't go there. <laughs> yeah, Lady Holder. Lady Holder. You know, she impulsed herself with Cooper. Um. And now Cooper's kind of building her own little little agricultural Cooper, legacy. Cooper, Cooper ended up in my thick even by it was by accident because I was like, okay, Sebastian needs to go get some cookies, right? And I just go in there and all of a sudden he's asking Chief, Chief Cooper for cookies. And I'm like, what? What is Cooper doing? Oh, okay, Cooper runs the mess. That's my head cannon. Cooper runs the mess everywhere. <laughs> it's my assumption that Cooper is running the mess in everybody's thick. You just haven't disclosed the name of the person running. If if the mess is being run efficiently, if in your fic it is being run inefficiently, clearly Cooper wasn't available. Cooper is still on Earth. <laughs> yeah, if, if you're not if you're not being a body in Rock Creek Park, you're finding a body in Rock Creek Park. <laughs> yes. Yeah, actually, Dark. I'm gonna. So Dark says this. It says all the local bases advise this thing. And finally, please be advised that if you venture into Rock Creek Park on your liberty, you have a 10% chance of dying and 20% chance of being injured, finding a body, or being questioned by NCIS. And I'm gonna tack on to that. Unless you're a petty officer, in which case your odds of dying go up to 100%. <laughs> because it's always the petty officers who are dead in Rock Creek Park. I even wrote a story about that. (laughs) You is definitely a girl. Absolutely. That is 100% in my head, Kenna, now. You's a girl. I would would fight anybody who said otherwise. I'd be like, no, what? I'm going to get my earrings off. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you misgender her? (laughs) What is wrong with you? She 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 has said that she is a girl. That is the way it is. Do not argue with her. Somebody had asked a question. I think it was Edie. I wrote it down. I didn't write it down. I don't write shit down. I copied and pasted it. Yes. How do you decide whether to cut a piece of writing as not serving your story or leave it in to enrich it? Um, Well, for me, I am – I'm not quite – Kira's more of a Kira's a little bit more of a minimalist than I am, but I'm more of a minimalist than a lot of people. Um. And it's basically my – I look at it and go, is this moving my story forward? If it's not, it doesn't really – typically, that's my decision that it doesn't belong there. I don't typically find things that aren't moving the story forward or at least developing the characters in some fashion that enable them to move the story forward um, as enriching. So I don't a lot, but this is a, this is a style of writing issue as well because there's a lot of things that people like in some authors that I don't enjoy. I don't enjoy you know reading about sconces and wainscoting and um, 
the colors of wallpaper and baseboard. I just don't enjoy that at all. Um, I don't care about crown molding. Um, unless it is, and that's not true, Dark. I would, let me disagree with you about, in terms of your narrative style, you don't have a lot of fluff in it. I would say you have a very, um, very sharp narrative. Um, yeah. More like a foil than a sword, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you have a very sharp narrative. Yeah, it's very pokey. Someone told me once that, someone told me once that I write on the, um, on the blade of a knife, that I write on the edge of a knife, and, and maybe that's probably true. Um, when it comes to elements that sneak into my plot when I'm writing, and, th- and that happens when you're creative, you know, you're, you know, when you're moving into a story and you're being creative, it's a boom, 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 boom. Um, and you see something in there in your second draft, you're thinking, do I need this? Does it enrich my environment? Does it enrich my characters? Does it serve my plot? Does it amuse me? Probably. It's almost usually 100% that that's the reason it was there because it amused me when I wrote it. <clears throat> Does it slow my pace? Does it alter my tone? Now, if it amuses me, I'm likely to keep it as long as it doesn't slow my pace or alter my tone. If it alters the tone of my work, it's gone. If Because it's going to stand out and be weird to the reader. And they might not even know why, but it'll be off-putting. A lot of times if you make a mistake like this in your rough draft, um, you got to be disinclined to remove it because it's going to be a lot of work, especially like if I had to remove Avery from Finding Atlantis, which I would not do, it would be very difficult. Because mm-hmm. I've done so much weaving for him already, and he doesn't even appear until about halfway through the story, but he's there, boom, boom, boom. In fact, when I was thinking that I might put some scenes in early on in my second draft, where Sebastian is going out to feed him before they bring him onto the city um, to give Avery a little more, you know, flesh Avery out a little bit in my second draft. Um, But really, you know, enrichment and amusement are fine, even if it doesn't further your plot, as long as it doesn't slow your pace or alter your tone. Yeah. But if you have an element that is slowing down your pace or outright destroying your pace or um, changing the tone of your work entirely for a brief moment and then it's like a, it's like, it's like a head hop for your plot, then you've got a problem. But Avery doesn't do any of those things. Actually, Avery is very good for my pace um, in that he has a routine and he keeps the characters on a routine. You know, I'm sleeping, I'm eating, I'm going to the bathroom. <laughs> I need to slaughter on the gate floor. <laughs> I need yeah. my reaching activity. I finished uh, your new post, like, when the music came on. I was I was still reading. <laughs> when the music came on and I just finished it, like, right then. I was like, hmm. Um, but, you know, Dark, I think that, you, I haven't seen you really describing things that I don't think move your story forward, which is why I think your narrative is actually very sharp. Um, you, I mean, like, hmm. I read a story once, um, and it's not about, some people are long writers. Somebody can be, uh, it, if somebody could be 
average 100,000 words a story and still have a very sharp, stripped-down narrative. It all depends upon what they're doing in there. And in that 100,000 words, because just as somebody is, is – tends to write long or write big stories doesn't necessarily mean that their stories have a lot of, of, of fluff or extraneous things in them. Um, and when you just, and it, the amount of descriptive stuff isn't even to me what I would consider um, the, the defining character of this kind of, like, does this move your story forward? I wrote a story where there was a lot of emphasis it was an interesting story, but easily a third of the story was describing clothing. And I don't mean, and it was a long story. It was like 150,000 words. So that's about 50,000 words devoted to clothes. And I'm not just talking about what was worn, but the experience of putting every single garment on. Now, in this story, clothing was very significant in in a fashion, but it didn't, it, it was, let me put say it was too significant because the fact that on screen we got to experience every pair of panties being put on and the pants and the shoes and strappy sandals, every single thing was experienced repeatedly over and over and over again. It bogged the pace down. And I understand that the, this character's experience of clothing was really essential to their to the story overall, but to the it was but it was so much that it was too much to the point that it just any time they started to get dressed, I just skipped forward a couple of pages because I couldn't deal with another outfit description. And but that is some pe- some people write that way, and there there are readers for every style. But when it comes down to even in that that writing style, I would say she went too far. So. When it comes to the question of does that enrich the story, I would say a third of your story being devoted to getting dressed and undressed um, is too much. Um, anytime, I, I just don't think descriptions, as I don't think descriptive beats should occupy that much of anybody's story. I, I think they're boring. And you have to be really just have a deep, you're really writing for that deep abiding love of describing something um, and helping people to visualize a scene. But the problem is, is you're going to lose most people in that. Um, There are probably a few people, we've all read those historical romances or something, where it was clear the author knew a a lot about the, um, that time period and really wanted you to know it. Um, I hate those. I skipped that shit. I do too. I don't need, I do you know, and you know what, Gina, you can we talk for a minute? I really didn't need to know how to dye or cure leather with pee, but thanks for letting me know because I might need it in the future maybe. I don't know. If, there, if there's an apocalypse, I'm, 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 I'm taking your books with me because I'll be able to, like, process a horse and make my own leather and make my own soap. And learn how to give head. Oh, wait, I already know how to do that one. But thanks. You might have taught me that early on, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the soap. The blowjob. Well, you know, when when something moves over from entertainment or from, from fiction into education... If it starts to feel like a textbook, it, it, it's 
probably out of place. And there's this impulse. It's like I research, damn it, this this research. I research this. By God, you guys are all going to learn everything I've researched. I mean, folks, when I was writing Demons, I asked my pops a question. Um, <laughs> that was a very she, educational evening. It was. It was. It was a very simple question, um, and it was just me confirming why uranium is. I think it was just confirming why uranium is not a fusionable material, and it's because it would just basically fall apart. You can't fuse something that's got that many. Um, I mean, uranium is what. There's a two thirty five, a two thirty eight. It basically just it just falls apart. It's it's too heavy. So um, I just wanted to confirm because he's he he's PhD in chemistry. He was right there, and I was starting to feel like the NSA was going to arrest my ass for all this research I was doing <laughs> about fission, nuclear fission. And so I'm asking him a couple of questions. And I thought I, I want a confirmation, right? And like hours later. I mean, we are off on him explaining to me exactly why the sun, they think our our sun is a third-generation sun and what supports that, and there wouldn't be uranium on Earth if it wasn't a third-generation sun. And I'm falling into a science coma. <laughs> and you know something, folks? I could have shared all that shit with you guys, but I didn't <laughs> because it didn't serve my story. But there's this, there's this aspect of, for a lot of writers. It's like, you know, it's like I I learned all this shit. You guys are gonna learn it. Um, but speaking of third generation son, there was some question um, on some game my husband was playing, and he was reading the questions out to me, and it was about the son, and I answered it from the kitchen. He come in the kitchen, and he said, "How the hell did you know that?" I said, "I know things." <laughs> I got it from your dad. <laughs> And it's just, but just putting that stuff in the story, for starters, it, us having a third-generation son would have absolutely nothing to do with the story. Did I have to learn that and why and all that crap? Yes, I did, but it's just, it just doesn't serve me to share all that stuff. Um, and so, but, and so there's this, clearly this, you can tell when an author has done a lot of research and they've learned a lot about a subject, and they are letting you know. They are, they are informing you. Um, no, it doesn't work that way. If it, and so when you've done a lot of research, um, especially research, and you want to figure out how much of this should you include, because how much of it is enriching, and that is a question that is very difficult to answer. And it, it's, it, it's a question that is more easily answered the further you are, are away from the subject matter, Right. Um, it's sort of right. like pruning a tree, right? When, you, when you're when you're growing like a, a, one of those like topiaries or whatever, I think I gave this analogy before. If you're using like a, you know if you're trying to make a to, you know you build grow the thing you're going to make a topiary out of, right? You can't really tell where it needs to be pruned when you're standing right in front of it. If it, you know a bigger one, somebody but somebody from far away can see exactly where it's misshapen or where it's a little overgrown or you missed the branch there. It's a lot easier to edit from afar. And it Which is, is why we tell you to give yourself a break on a story. Give yourself five, six weeks before you come back to it to give yourself some room to breathe and to give the narrative time to sit so that when you look at it, you can look at it with fresher eyes. 
Yeah, and that, that's really that's really important with determining. You've got to be be get enough distance to be a little bit objective about your work. Is this, you know, because there are times I've reread my own work and go, okay, the pace kind of got slaughtered right there. Why am I suddenly bored with my own story? That's hard to do when I'm writing it. The further away I am from it, the more I can be objective about what's going on, and um, the more I can tell if that's I also, put too much of my research into a story. That's also true if you're heading towards professional um, circumstances. The more time you can give yourself between your final draft, which honestly should be your second or third draft, um, third draft if you're doing professional work, because you know. It's a job. Treat it like one. Um, but the longer you give yourself between that third draft and your first set of edits, the better prepared you will be. Because um, if your first set of edits doesn't feel like an anal probe, you're not being edited properly. <laughs> if your butt doesn't kind of hurt, then then you because no one's perfect. So if if your first set of edits doesn't feel like an anal probe then you might want to ask some questions. Now, sometimes the editor will do a content edit and then a grammar edit separately, but my experience mostly is I get it all at once, and it looks like a bloodbath. And I, I don't, yep. I'm actually a pretty clean writer. I'm, I'm a clean writer. But if I don't get a bloodbath back, I'm, I'm going to question, I'm like, what well, is – are you sure this is okay? And I was going through my own shit going, okay, doesn't this need a, par- doesn't this need like a new paragraph here? I'll, and I'll send back 2,500 questions if my edits don't come to me bleeding. What do you think of this? What do you think of this? I think it's easy to this. Um. <laughs> because obviously <laughs> I need to direct this person to edit me properly. <laughs> Yeah, even but like even in even when I'm being dated, if I get back five thousand words with no corrections, and that has happened, I'm a pretty clean writer, but I'm not that clean. Um, I always I ask get, questions. I like, get did you, mean to do this? did you mean to do that? Is, is this really what you want to say? <laughs> There's something going on here. I had five thousand words come back from two different people. Same five thousand words come back from two different people with. All, with one person had one change in that 2,000 words, and the other person had none. One change in 5,000 words to two different people. I was like, no. No. That did not happen. Was I one of those people? Was I one of those people? Uh, no. No. Okay. No, not, <laughs> you were not one of those people. Um, but um, I, so I gave it some space. And I will I will admit it was a pretty clean it was pretty it was actually a pretty clean chapter. But I wound up giving that that chapter uh, it was probably wound up being and I made a note about it. this chapter. I made a note in my editing notes, my posting notes. This chapter has serious problems. <laughs> my beta <laughs> said nothing wrong with it. <laughs> so I mean, that was my note. This chapter has serious problems because my beta found nothing wrong with it. So when I went to when I was ready to post, I reread it. Um, and by then I had weeks away from it. So I I was I reread it very carefully and I probably found twenty or twenty five typos in that five thousand words. Um I will say one of the things I've noticed is the more fast paced something is, the more 
the more the act, the more the less corrections I get. And what that all tells me is that it was actually the fact that there weren't a lot of corrections told me the writing was particularly good because people were so wrapped up in it and they weren't seeing the mistakes. So right. in a way, it's not great, but in a way, it was a compliment that they weren't finding any problems. I was like, this must be a really good chapter. So. When I beta for someone, I strive to find at least three or four or five things on each page. Because <laughs> it's like, that's my minimum. If I, if I can't find that many, something's wrong. <laughs> I, I have to ask a question somewhere. I have to do something. Are you sure you should be using this semicolon? <laughs> Now, what's the most awkwardly phrased sentence on this page? And let me point it out. <laughs> right? Because I, I hate that. I hate an awkward turn of phrase. And it's, a, it's yeah, the it's, one thing that will pop out to me really fast, an awkward turn. I'm like, that, it's a little that was, off. That, kind of landed. <laughs> that, that, that sentence is why the word clunky exists. It doesn't work. <laughs> And the funny thing is, like, um, Kira, Kira baited my um, QB project, and there were a couple. She pointed out a couple of awkward sentences, and um, there were a couple of them. I remember. I remember there was at least one that I remember reading when I wrote it. I couldn't figure out how to phrase it. When I did my own edit, I saw it as a problem. And I was like, "That's a little clunky." Uh, and then she jumped right on. This is awkwardly phrased. And the thing is, I couldn't see the solution until I had that much distance from it. And as soon as she pointed out that it was awkward, I was like, um, yeah, that, I, do, I do know that's awkward. But it was a lot easier <laughs> to find the, the solution to the problem when I had a little space from it. So, um, I think sometimes, like, I want to reword for you. But I also know as a, per, as, a, as a writer, I hate when somebody offers me a rewording. I feel like I have to write, write it entirely differently than I'm, and I might have used the words you gave me if you hadn't given them to me, which is why I hardly ever give somebody the wording on something unless they specifically ask me for it because it's just like, because I don't like it. <laughs> Typically, the only time I give rewordings on I don't give rewordings for awkward sentences when I'm editing. Um, I don't typically do that in beta at all. But um, is when it's more a case of there's um, some sort of agreement issue where I'll say, okay, your choices for this are this or this. You've got some hybrid of right. the two. So pick which agreement you like and, and go with it. Because yeah. it's hard to guess which one they really mean when they've got a, a noun, you know, like a noun verb agreement, like messed up. It's like, I don't know which way you're going with this, but pick one of these. <laughs> Commas are very or, useful. A comma could cost you millions of dollars. That's true. Commas could cost you millions. Let missing one can. Um, better case for an Oxford comma I've never heard. Um, right. But honestly, if you suck at commas, you're much better and you will frustrate your editor less if you take them all out before you send your story on. Because it is it is actually less work to me to put commas in where they belong than to strip a bunch of them out. Now, there are times where um, I rarely use a colon, to... but I'll use semicolon every chance I get. Colons rarely belong in fictional work. It, it is a rare circumstance right. that they should be there. There are circumstances for them, but it's just very uncommon. Um, I find that Grammarly is actually pretty good at comments um, to the point where I feel like if you didn't do any commas at all and let Grammarly do your commas, that 
most editors professionally would not kick you out of bed for bad grammar. That's probably true. I mean, I disagree with Grammarly. I mean, Grammarly is going to put a comma after every of course. Not every of course gets a comma, and sometimes it actually right. winds up being emphatically wrong. Um, yeah. Grammarly, it, 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 it doesn't dialogue stilted if you put yeah. a comma after of course in some instances. Um, also, sometimes it, it's giving you a comma after an introductory phrase, except it hasn't identified properly what the end of the introductory, the phrase, introductory is. phrase is. Yeah. So you want to put a comma but in the middle of an introductory phrase? But that's a case of reading it. Just read it. If it suggests the comma, read it. And if the break doesn't make sense, don't put it in. It's better to have it and find out where your break connected. is. Yeah. Yeah. So it, but it's it also really funny to have Grammarly to, like, correct you on, like, a sentence with the word cock in it. <laughs> yeah. I had this since if you were a 12-year-old boy, I guess. I don't know. But um, it makes me laugh my ass off every time. You need to put a comma after cock. No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> there are some cases where Grammarly's telling me to put in a comma, and I've just laughed. I'm like, no, I can't do that. Are you crazy? Or wants me to take a comma out. And the, the, it wanting you to take commas out, I would say most of the time when it asks you to take out a comma that is correct, if you know it's correct, easily 90% of the time, it's because Grammarly has not identified your parenthetical phrase. We've talked before about how Grammarly is, yeah. weak is the parenthetical phrase. It, it, it's because there's no real algorithm for them to use to be able to tell what is and is not a parenthetical phrase, which is why it mucks up introductory phrases. It's why it can um, miss the, the summative phrases or I can't summary phrase. Summary phrase can be mixed up too. Um, it can't tell the difference between a restrictive and a non-restrictive and a positive. So, of course it can't. There's no way. That, that's a matter of understanding the, the, the nuance of the context. And so um, but I think it's a very good guideline for people who are really off the rails when it comes to grammar um, and um, comma usage. And recently it started pointing out um, times when like, I put a period instead of a comma in dialogue. I put a period there, and Grandma was like, no, girl. <laughs> you need to put a comma. And it was right. Great. And I was like, holy shit, Grandma. Really? <laughs> that's, that's a real improvement. Um, it one is. of the things I've noticed is that sometimes um, I've seen this from a few, a few people that, that I think that I know use Grammarly a couple times recently, um, which is that they're getting commas in front of names when they're talking about somebody instead of to somebody. And I think Grammarly is seeing a direct address comma needing be needed when it, it, you're yeah, talking it about is. someone. I've seen it. Um, I've seen it. And uh, it, be careful about that because you do not put a comma in front of a name when you're talking about someone. When they put a comma, you only offset a name with commas when you're talking to someone. Unless it's in a positive, but that's a different thing. Um, so yeah, when you're talking about someone like, you know, John's going to the store, it's not John comma is going to the store. That doesn't make any sense, <laughs> but I'm seeing that a lot all of a sudden. And I'm thinking that Grammarly is not properly, um, identifying direct address. So, or it's seeing direct so the address, direct address of that would be John comma go to the store. Right. Right. So just, okay. just you know, if 
it, but I agree completely. If you're stuck at commas, you're better off taking them all out and trying to run it through Grammarly and see what Grammarly says. And when Grammarly tells you to put in a comma, just read the sentence and see if the comma, you think it makes sense there. Most of the time, it, they're probably going to be right. It's going to be right. It will help you and clean it, up your work a lot. Yeah. It will. And if you are, so. if, you're, if you do Grammarly Premium, you can tell Grammarly that you're doing fiction, and it will give you a little bit different rules. It will give you a little latitude on a couple things. It also doesn't mess with your grammar too much in your dialogue unless you hit a fragment. I hit a fragment since the other day, and it was like, no, girl. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, Kira. <laughs> Grammarly loves to harp at me about unnecessary. do a fragment if I want to. I can do a fragment if the, I want. The, Grammarly likes to harp at the, me about the, too many um, ellipses. And I'm like, because yeah, it, it tells me, it, it says it says my number one problem, according to Grammarly, is unnecessary use of ellipses. I'm like, how do you know? You don't know if it's unnecessary. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> how dare you? But actually, I think um, it would probably tell me I'm using, like, because I've been doing a lot of Atlantis fic lately, and it's on the city instead of in the city, Grammar really doesn't like that. But you can't say in the city if you're on Atlantis because it's a fucking right. floating city on a planet in another galaxy. So you're on Atlantis. You're not in Atlantis. That would be weird. And you need consent for that. <laughs> you are on the city of Atlantis, the floating city. Um. So yeah, I think you I think you can you can put a lot of stock in what it says. But even if you're off, if you, even if you're wrong, you are wrong with a lot of people who Grammarly has have advised that way, as opposed to some of the utterly bizarre commas I see. Um, I think I pay for premium on Grammarly, um, and I use it uh, both um, for you know my original works and my fan works, um, but. Um, I consider it a tool of my craft, and um, and even if I was only using it on my fan fiction, I would still have no problems paying for it because it uh, it's just something that I like to use, and it um, it makes me think about my structure of my of my work, it makes me think about my sentences, and you know, am I doing that right? It, it makes me question things, it makes me learn things, it makes me look shit up. So I, I just consider it a very valuable tool in, in my arsenal of other tools to use um just like i pay for microsoft 360 so i can have word and use it and it's just a tool in my crafts it's, it's a tool in my toolbox um and i i mean sometimes you're like okay I, I really don't need that you know when you're trying to justify paying for something that you probably really don't need like the other day um i really wanted aliens not aliens, as one of the aliens. I really wanted vampires. And so um, in my Sims game, so I bought the vampire expansion pack, which I didn't need, but I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and I got in a royalty check, and I was like, hmm. <laughs> and they were on sale for 40% off, and I'm like, ah, I'm going to have vampires. Unfortunately, you can't turn vampires off once you get it, and it's a problem because my vampires keep running around 
feeding on my sims without permission. Are they getting people pregnant? That's 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 the issue. That's the aliens. I'm just making sure because you got really grossed out when I asked that one, you know, vampire baby question. We have not had a vampire baby yet. We have not had a vampire baby yet. But we are not going to be having blood milk vampire babies. That's just not happening. No. These are the deeply profound conversations that we have, folks. No. Will there be blood in the formula? (laughs) No. How dare you, Buffy fandom? How dare you? Anyways, um, so back to things that you uh, and you know, I take my craft as a writer very seriously. Um, so I um, I invest in myself as a writer. I, I buy books on writing. I um, I invest in software that um, makes that makes things easier, like Microsoft Word and you know Grammarly. Um, I have a membership to um, um, Dictionary. What's the one you told me that was the better one? And I switched to that one because I was using Dictionary.com, and then I switched. And but then I and then I got a Kindle, and it it came oh, with a the free Oxford American. Yes, my my new Kindle has the Oxford American Dictionary, so I so I canceled my membership online because I now I have it on my Kindle. Um, it's really cool, Oxford American. It also has the Oxford Dictionary, um, and it's actually cheaper to buy like a seven inch Kindle and get a free Oxford Dictionary than it is to actually buy the Oxford Dictionary. It is a fucking hell of an expensive dictionary. Um, And they update it for you. (laughs) I mean, the Oxford American Dictionary is so expensive that you can rent it. On Amazon, last time I checked anyway. Or you can buy a $50 Kindle and get the digital version that's updated regularly. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Yeah, it's thirty-four dollars to rent it. The price has gone down to buy it. Um, you can buy it for fifty. It used to be more than that, um, but it is. You could rent it for thirty-four dollars. Rent it. And it'd be due but, back. Yeah, I, I would get it say for two months. that investing in yourself as a writer is its own reward. So if you're concerned about spending money on something like Grammarly, um, if it helps your craft and you can afford it, um, that's all justification that you need. If it isn't taking food out of your mouth or your baby's mouth or your, or your fur baby's mouth and it helps you, get it. Wouldn't it be cheaper just to like get the online membership to the Cambridge uh, the Oxford Dictionary? The online the is really expensive. The online is really, oh, is it really? expensive. Um, um, I had dictionary.com for a while, but like I said, I canceled it when I got the uh, new Kindle because it had the Oxford on there. Yeah. Well, the reason I, I don't use dictionary.com professionally because it's not one of the official dictionaries of the um, Chicago Manual style. Um, so professionally I have to check you know I have, when I have to look up a word to make sure somebody's using it correctly I have to do Merriam-Webster or I think they also use American Heritage but it's not not a favorite dictionary of mine or the Oxford um, American is one of theirs so I went I went with Oxford because um, 
you know, just just because. Um, Oxford is where it's what you know word new words are added to the dictionary through Oxford. So I just I just went with Oxford as my dictionary of choice. Um, but I picked it based upon what what are the dictionaries that are CMOS references. So that's that's how I wound up with Oxford. But Dictionary.com certainly isn't on their list, um, even though it's it's an easy yeah. one for me to. I've been using it for years. I use it too. I use the thesaurus even more over there. The, the, oh yeah, the, the thesaurus.com. Um, but Webster's, I have a Webster's dictionary somewhere on the house. Um, but I have a Chicago style manual, and I do have the Cambridge um, Oxford on my Kindle. So <clears throat> yeah. So you because you've got because you've got the the you know having it online is ideal because then it's always current. Because sometimes right. you're, you know a style guide might not get updated. Um, you know, with, as quickly as like, you know, like somebody might use a word, have a word that that doesn't even, you know, like, what is this word? Um, and the, and the usage for it might not be covered in a publisher style guide or something like that. Um, and to make sure you're using it correctly, you have to you have to hit the dictionary. So, um, well, what I would say is, if you if you're, if you're using a word in your narrative that is so obscure that your editor has to look it up in a fucking dictionary. Maybe you shouldn't use it. Well, sometimes I look it up because somebody's using a word in a way that I'm not familiar with it being used. I will say when that's happened, 90% of the time I'm adding a comment that says, um, because I I always want to be sure I'm not wrong before I tell them that they're wrong. So (laughs) most of the time... Most of the time, I am double-checking to make sure that I'm not totally out to lunch about what this word means. And then I'm saying, you know, I don't, this doesn't make, or I'll say, this doesn't seem to make sense in context. Um, can you, you know, double-check your, your reference and, and then just, and let me know, you know, and put in the word that you actually intended. Um, and that happens, like an author, you know, you think a word means something, um, it doesn't mean, and you, you always used it wrong, and, you know, and you don't know you're always using it wrong, and then right somebody comes it's along and says, you. "Is this what you really meant?" You know, because it, it doesn't quite make sense that, that he would, you know, be wearing a bird on his head or something like that. You know, it's just it's it, it to somebody who knows the word, they go, "That what?" And so sometimes a word has an obscure meaning that you that that you know I may not be familiar with. So I always double check to make sure that there's not. But the thing is, anytime I have to look a word up, even if there is a a, a usage of it that is what they uh, is how they're using it, I will still perhaps comment and say this usage of this word is really uncommon. And I'll even sometimes double check word usage to see if it if if it's more common than I think it is. And say so this is a really uncommon usage. It could be confusing. I recommend that you consider changing it. So. I mean, typically, anytime I have to go to the dictionary on something, I am going to leave a comment. The thing is, it happens on almost every project I work on. I would say the last one I work on, I didn't have to go to the dictionary for anything. But almost every other project, I've, I've had to go to the dictionary. So, and if I've had to, what I would say I is usually talk, I'll leave, I'll leave a comment the, about it. In the modern fiction market, um, it is not in your best interest to sound pretentious. Or to probably even use the word pretentious in your narrative. <laughs> now, the the thing is, you can have a character who's very pretentious, but the pretentious right. language needs to be confined to their dialogue. 
and because it's because it's obnoxious. Yeah, and it, and that's a deliberate character choice. But it, you don't want your narrative to come across like, you know, um, there was I did I did edit a project once where I did have to look up several words. I was like, what what is that? And and, uh, and and they weren't using the word wrong. They were just using really obscure words. And I felt like that they had gone to the, the, the thesaurus to try to find the biggest words they could in a few situations. I don't know if what was going on, but I did encourage some changing of some words because um, I have a pretty good vocabulary. <laughs> so um, it's it's. I generally I don't mind I don't mind in a story if I have to look up a word once or twice, but it it needs to flow in the vibe of the narrative. So if somebody's narrative to me is kind of like fourth or fifth grade level, and then there's just a bunch of you know twelve dollar words tacked in, that's jarringly weird. So yeah, I'm wondering what level I write at. I used to know. Well, it all depends upon what source is doing the checking on the writing because you could get an average of, you know, eighth grade or something, and one source will say that you're writing at second grade level, and another will say you're writing at twelfth. And, um, but college is actually not your goal. <laughs> if you ever find a tool right. that tells you what level you write at, about eighth grade, somewhere around junior high, is is your target. It is not college level. The fiction market has never, ever been at, and the newspaper definitely is not. Newspapers and the fiction market are not targeted at a reading comprehension level of college and a vocabulary level of college. It's targeted towards about junior high. Because you and want maybe your, um, you want your, um, your narrative to be um, accessible, accessible. Say it for me. It is not coming out. Yes. And you want your narrative to be um, kind of approachable, like a a really outgoing person, (laughs) an extrovert who's fun to be around. That's the kind of narrative you want want to present to your reader to to be entertaining. Yeah, okay, sorry. Yeah, Arate makes the point. It's 12 to 14 years old um, is, is is the general target of is it your – so 6th to 8th grade doesn't actually mean anything to anybody outside the, outside of North America. So um, someone who's about 12 should have sufficient vocabulary to understand the majority of the words used in newspapers and most fiction because that's – um, the way that's the target for the way it's written, twelve to fourteen. I mean, sometimes, but the thing is, you can, there are characters. Sometimes, somebody, some writers' narratives have a lot more. Um, There's a lot more erudition in some narrative, some some people's narrative style, and that's fine if that's the overall style. But you don't. There's a difference between you know you you sounding like you're well read or well informed or whatever in the way you write, and 
versus just occasionally tacking on words that are much too big for um, the general style of narrative. I think Grammarly offers you a readability. Do they? Statistic. I, they used to, I thought. Apparently, it does have a readability score. It's based on word length, sentence length. But that's weird that just those two things, word length and sentence length alone, is not the best measure. No, I'd agree. That's probably not, it's not really good. Yeah, its readability score is based upon the average length of sentences and words in your document using a formula known as the Fleisch Reading Ease Test. I've actually um, seen the, the I, oh, actually, I don't know if that's pronounced Fleisch or Flesh, but I'm, I'm going to go with not being Flesh. Um, it says, in general, you want to aim for a score of 60 or higher. With a score of 60, your doctor will be, doc, document will be easy to read. For most people with at least an eighth grade education, that's an average 13-year-old, in case you're unfamiliar with U.S. grade levels. So I put my first two chapters of my quantum bang in Grammarly to check, and I got a readability score of 83. Hmm. Which is interesting because there's a – you probably need to – something a little more sophisticated than that because there was, like, murder in there. <laughs> you would think that they, you know – I guess – they don't. They would read context like that, would they? In those in those things. So. Yeah, it's not definitely not going to get context. Um, where do you see the readability score? Um, after you put it in, there's a um. On the side with the where the assistant is. Okay, you got the assistant. If you scroll down, it, it gives you a whole bunch of different things. And one of them is um, performance, and the performance gives you your readability. Performance. It's where? Oh, I'll perform. My performance. I got an 83. Your text is simple and easy to read. Oh, great. <laughs> Isn't that kind of insulting? Simple. It's like, it's, fuck you. It is I'm likely to be understood by someone with at least a sixth grade education. Oh, that's kind of aiming low. <laughs> so my word length is average and my sentence length is above average. Yeah, okay, I, I buy that. Oh, we're down to 90 seconds. We're fucking around with the grammar checks. Um, anyways, um, I hope you guys have a fantastic weekend. And um, this podcast was um, helpful.
helpful or at least interesting or at least amusing. One of the three. One of the three. Or maybe even two of the three. That would be great. Um, Say goodnight, Julie. Good night, everyone.